looking at some of the, the big doctrines, the big teachings of the Bible. And tonight we come to the topic of sin and salvation. Previously we've thought about how God speaks to us, how God reveals himself to us. we thought about who God is, God in himself and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And now we come to think about sin and salvation. Because when the Bible speaks to us, God reveals himself to us. And he reveals to us that his greatest concern for us is not that we need some more advice about how to live our lives. But his greatest concern for us is that we have gone away from him. And at the heart of the Bible lies the fact that we have sinned against our God. And the heart of the the good news is that God has a solution for the problem of our sin. So we begin, first of all, then launching straight in. This works. By thinking about what sin actually is. And if you read your Bible, you'll discover many words that are used interchangeably to refer to sin. We've got words like iniquity. We've got words like unrighteousness, transgression, wickedness, disobedience, and so on. And I could try and offer a definition for each of these different ways of talking about sin. But really all that they do is they just describe different facets of ways in which we disobey God. The ways in which we feel to conform to God's will for our lives and God's instructions to us. And simply put then, sin is any lack of conformity to God's will for our lives. So if God tells us something that he wants us to do and we don't do it, then that's sin. If God tells us something not to do and then we do it, then that's sin. And our lives then are characterized by this deep-seated rebellion against God's instructions so that we simply don't want to do what God says to us. Now, we all know, of course, the story of how this started in Genesis chapter 3, after God made our first parents, Adam and Eve. He told them that they were not to eat of the fruit of the tree that was in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said to them that you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This was God's warning to them that if they disobeyed this instruction, this one instruction that they were given, then they would experience death. That whereas they experienced life in the garden, they would enter into this experience of death. And so the serpent enters the garden, deceives Eve, tells her that if she takes from this fruit, then actually it's going to be something which is good for her, that it's going to make her wise. And so she takes it, she gives some to her husband Adam, and they both eat from this fruit. And instead of becoming wise, they realize that they have entered into an experience of shame. And so they feel naked and exposed because as soon as their relationship with God has been broken so that they're no longer listening to God, then they realize then that's the point at which they can start to betray one another. And so they feel naked before one another and naked before the God before whom they stand. And then God seeks them out in the garden and God demands an account for their actions and says that because they have disobeyed him, then they're going to have to live with the consequences of what they had done. And the cons- one of the consequences is that God curses the creation that they live in, curses the ground that they, that they grow their crops on, so that they live in this world which has been damaged by, by sin and suffers the consequences of sin and the consequences of God's curse and God's judgment. And so he banishes them from the garden so that they no longer have access to the tree of life, the tree that symbolized the life that they could enjoy in God's presence. They cut off from it. 
and instead they experience death, separation from God. And they start the experience of actually physically dying, as well as the experience of spiritual death being cut off from God. And so eventually then, they do actually physically die. And I just go over that story again. It's familiar to all of us, but because that story is so familiar, sometimes we lose sight of just how important it is in a world which goes on just ignoring uh, the problem of sin in our world and trying to present it in different ways. We as Christians, people that have received God's word, have the story of what has gone wrong with our worlds. And not only does the Bible not make sense without this story, but our world does not make sense without this foundational story that explains that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things have gone wrong. Sin has entered into our world. And the experience of death that is so mystifying to us, that is so troubling to us, is not the way the world is supposed to be, but is a consequence of the sin that's entered the world. So then... The Bible grapples with this this problem that has entered into our world. And one of the key texts to explain the effects of sin and death in our world is Romans chapter 5. Paul writes in verses 12 through to verse 18 of Romans chapter 5 about this experience of sin and death. And he begins, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And then through verses 13 through to 17, he goes on to explain how Adam's sin and Christ's act of obedience, Christ's act of righteousness by which he has saved us, are actually very different from one another. So in verses 12, he starts talking about how they're similar in some way. One man brought sin into the world and He doesn't continue his thought then until he gets to verse 18. Now, I'm not going to talk about verses 13 through to 17 to keep things simple. But then he gets to 18 and he, he continues his thought. And he says, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So Paul, he started this train of thought thinking about the parallels between what Adam has done and brought sin and condemnation and death into the world and says that that is, in a way, parallel to what Jesus Christ has done, but completely different, of course, because what Jesus Christ has done is not brought condemnation, but he has brought life and justification. And similarly, it's through one man and through his one act, not of disobedience, but his one act of righteousness of obedience to God and through his death on the cross, he's brought this life available for all people. Now, Paul makes some really important points that are worth thinking about in this passage. It says in verse 12, sin entered into the world through one man. So he's talking about Adam. Adam's sin brought sin into our world. It brought a cataclysm that has transformed the way our world works. Secondly, he says that death came through sin. So prior to this, humans didn't experience death, but death came through Adam's one man's sin. And not only that death came to Adam, but this death came upon all people. This condemnation of death that we suffer comes not just to Adam for his sin, but comes to all of us 
And then he goes on to say in verse 12 that not only did Adam sin, but that all sinned. And so these are worth thinking about what he's communicating here. Because what Paul describes here can be described as original sin. The idea that human beings are corrupted in their very nature from the very beginning because of their connection to Adam. That we are sinners because of Adam and we have entered into the experience of condemnation and death because of Adam. And so Paul says that through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so we all experience this condemnation. That might seem uncontroversial to us, but that's a really controversial claim in the world around us. A couple of years ago, there was a head teacher, very prominent head teacher, um, and she said on Twitter, we're all born bad, and that's why it's so important to be morally educated. Original sin. Children need to be taught right from wrong. Anyway, this started a firestorm in the internet. People calling for her job, saying that a person in such a prominent position should not be allowed to have the responsibility of impressionable young minds because she believed that, that these children were actually born corrupt. Who in our enlightened world would believe such a thing? But the claim of Paul here in Romans and the claim of the Bible throughout is that we're not born as blank slates, just waiting to be filled. Nor are we born as little angels, little cherubs into the world. As lovely as children are, they're not born little cherubs into the world, just waiting to be corrupted by an evil society. But that we're born with a sinful nature that is set in rebellion against God. And as such, all of us, without exception, are subject to death because of the way we are. So the question then comes... How is it that this corruption spreads from Adam to us? How does, how does that work? Is it just that Adam sets a bad example for us? And so we enter into the world, we see other people setting a bad example, follow Adam's bad example, and thus become sinners. Or is it that the human race inherits some kind of corruption directly because of her connection with Adam? And it's important to think about that because... Way back in the 4th century, there was a British monk called Pelagius. He was in Wales, actually. But Wales didn't exist as a separate country back then. He was a British monk, and he said that our problem was that we followed Adam's bad example. And it wasn't an inevitability that we, that we did this. But they were born into the world kind of neutral. And we could choose then whether we wanted to follow Adam or not. But... The problem with that idea is that it's not clear then why each one of us has to die. Why is it that no one escapes death if not all of us are actually contaminated by sin? Uh, how is it that all of us have fallen into sin if actually falling into sin isn't an inevitability and with just enough willpower we could actually resist sin all the time? And more significantly, not only does it not jive with our experience, but it, it doesn't do justice with what the Bible talks about. In passages like Romans chapter 5, sin enters into the world and death through sin because of this one man's disobedience. Or in Psalm 51, Psalmist um, David, he's talking about his, his sin and he's deeply grieved through some awful stuff that he's done. And he says that he was sinful at birth, sinful from the time his mother conceived him. He's not trying to slander his mum. 
He's saying that from his earliest days, he has got this corrupt nature that just wants to do wrong things all the time. And he's not just exaggerating. He, he firmly believes that, that within each one of us, from before we are born, there's a corrupt nature that turns us away from God. And so our sinfulness runs really, really deep. So as much as we love all things British, Pelagius isn't one of the people that we should admire because his idea just runs counter to the Bible. And his view was roundly condemned by Christians after he came up with these ideas and is unambiguously wrong. Augustine, on the other hand, on the fourth century uh, in North Africa, he wrestled more carefully with what Paul says here in Romans chapter 5. And he wrestled with this idea that all sin there in Romans chapter 5 verse 12. What did that mean? In his Latin version that he had, it said, in whom all sinned, referring to Adam. And he thought that in some way, Adam represented us in the Garden of Eden. He was the head of the human race. And so when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, it was by proxy then that we sinned because we were joined to him and he was our, our head, our first parent. And as a result then of Adam's sin, God in effect says to Adam's descendants, okay, you want to live life without me, that's fine. I will let you be deprived of my restraining influence. I'll let you be deprived of my grace in your life. And you can see what life's like without me. And so God then gives us up, as, as Paul talks about elsewhere in Romans chapter 1 and 2. And so Adam's descendants find themselves in this position of because our first parents went astray from God, God has condemned all of us to enter into this world estranged from God and having this corruption in ourselves by which we actually turn away from God because God hasn't given us this, this grace that actually restrains sin in our lives. And I find Augustine's explanation much more convincing, much more biblical. At the end of the day, actually, I'm not sure that he got the interpretation of because all sinned right. He could be right in saying that we all sinned, in effect, when Adam sinned. That might be what Paul's talking about. But equally, Paul could be just saying that because Adam sinned, then all of us have actually sinned. And that's, that's you know, double reason why death has come into our, each one of our lives, because not only Adam sinned, but also because of our individual sin as well. But either, either way, whatever way you interpret this, the Bible is very insistent on our very close identification with Adam. And the Bible insists that because of our link with Adam, then we have incurred, incurred condemnation, incurred death. And that's paralleled by the fact that it's our link with Jesus Christ, our identification with Jesus Christ that then gives us this life, this justification that we experience. And so the Bible consistently deals with this idea that we are represented by people. We're either represented by Adam and his condemnation or represented by Jesus Christ. And so what we're saying then is that our identification with Adam as the head of the human race has incurred condemnation and death for all of us. We're all born with this corrupt nature 
that manifests itself in sinful desires from our very earliest days and in due course sinful actions in our lives. And because of that, because of that corrupt nature, because that manifests itself in sin in our lives, then we justly incur the sentence of death. And that death then mean, means that not only do we live our lives now separated from God, but that one day when we physically die, we enter into an eternity separated from God as well. And all of that then means, sets up the picture for us in the, the Bible, the context for telling us that we need not some advice, we need salvation. Our corrupted nature means that we can't not sin. Sin is an inevitability for us. So our only hope then is not that we can, through some self-improvement, reverse sin in our lives, but that God comes to us in our need and saves us and gives us what we cannot do for ourselves. So that then brings us to the topic of salvation. When we often talk about salvation, we often refer to the time when we become Christians, when we trust in Jesus Christ. At first, sometimes we'll, we'll say to somebody, when did you get saved? And what we mean is, when did you become a Christian? When did you come to know Jesus Christ? But the Bible uses the expression salvation much more broadly to refer to all that God does to rescue us from the problem of sin, forgiving us, changing us moving us towards that day when he will finally save us and rescue us from the, the fallenness of our own bodies and of the world that we actually live in. And so you might even talk then about the different tenses of salvation. You might say that we, we have been saved in the past, we're being saved in the present, and we're going to be saved in the future. And all of that is what the Bible tells us. And this first tense then of salvation, this entry point into the new life that we experience in Jesus Christ is what the Bible, particularly Paul, refers to as justification. And the key text here is in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, and I've got that on the screen, uh, and if you want, you can follow along in it. Paul, he writes, but now, at this stage in redemptive history, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just, to be righteous, and the one who justifies or declares righteous, those who have faith in Jesus. So what Paul has been arguing up to this point in the letter that he writes to the Romans is that we are all under God's condemnation. Whether we are Jews and we've been given God's, God's word in the Bible, God's instructions to us, or whether we are Gentiles, non-Jews, who don't have that privilege being brought up in that covenant community, we're all the same because we all fail to follow God's instructions. Uh, we all fail to follow God's law. And when Paul's talking about law here, he's not talking about civil law. He's talking about the law that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai, summarized in the Ten Commandments, that standard of righteousness that God set that told us how we ought to live. And that standard of righteousness 
was so high. It set a standard of perfection that when anyone tries to live up to that standard, they realize that they fall short of it. And it's only when you actually try to live up to that standard of righteousness that you realize how far short we fall of God's standard of righteousness and perfection. And what Paul then comes to in verse 21 is his, his crux in the book of Romans, because he's saying, but now, now at this stage in redemptive history, God has revealed something new. That whereas he had revealed his standard of righteousness in the Old Testament, now he has revealed through Jesus Christ a way of being righteousness, a way of being righteous before God that is not based on law keeping. A way in which we can stand before God as righteous that is not based on our keeping of the law. He's not saying that the Old Testament proclaimed a different way of getting saved. That somehow in the Old Testament, the way that you got saved was by keeping a standard of righteousness. No, his point is that you can never meet, meet that standard of righteousness. And his point is that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, testified to this coming way of being righteous before God. So they're not inconsistent. They're all pointing forward to the fact that you cannot keep this standard of righteousness. You need to be, be righteous before God in this other way that's not based in law-keeping. And so he explains what this new way is in verse 22. It's a way of being righteous before God that is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So this isn't a way of righteousness before God that's based upon our performance, our keeping of the law. This is a way that's given as a gift to all who have faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 23, that this is a gift that's available to both Jews and Gentiles because we're all in the same boat. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified as a free gift by God's grace. And this word justify that I've been using, it's, it's the same word as to be, to be righteous before God. Um, and, and in English, then, it gets a little bit confusing because we've got these different words for justice and righteousness and justification. If we wanted to keep it all simple, we could say that it, it, we would have to invent an English word. We would say that God righteousifies us, but that's bad English, so I'm not going to say that. God justifies us. He, he declares us righteous. We are righteous before God. And Paul then stresses that this way by which God brings us to be righteous before him is not an unrighteous thing for God to do. Because when we hear that God takes sinners and says that they're righteous, the first question that we have is how can God do that without being unrighteous? Because it says in the Bible that a judge, for example, who declares the unrighteous just, he says that, you know, you haven't done anything wrong, you're fine, that's unjust. So how does God do this? Well, Paul explains that the way God does it, verse 25, is that God deals with our sin, our problem, through presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation. God's angry against us because of our sin. And instead of carrying out his justice against us, he carries his justice against Jesus Christ. And when Christ sacrificially shed his blood on the cross, he became the sacrifice that secured our redemption, that secured this declaration of justice 
that we can be given. So we don't bear the guilt, but Jesus Christ did. And Paul then says that God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Righteousness because he had previously passed over the sins that had been committed beforehand. And what he means by that is that prior to the coming of Christ, there were plenty of people that trusted in God and asked God for this salvation. And God passed over their sins. He didn't punish them for their sins. But how can, be, how God, can, be, how can God be just and do that? Well, it's because he was waiting for that time when he would send his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. And Paul then says, it's in, in verse 26, is to declare his justice at the present time so that now for us who believe, God can be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. <clears throat> now, this is a really important passage in the Bible. And it's a really important passage to understand this idea of justification, what God does for us. And as I mentioned, this idea of being justified by, before God means to be in the right before God, to be righteous before God. But at this point, then we need to ask the question, what does Paul mean by this expression, justified, or to be righteous before God? Um, because there's, there's two different ways of understanding this. The Roman Catholic answer has been to say that when Paul talks about being justified or being righteous before God, he means that God makes us righteous. God makes us into better people. That God's work in our lives is a transformative work by which he comes to us, those who have faith in Jesus, and says, I will make you into a better person. And we, we could refer to that as imparted righteousness. So in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says justification includes the forgiveness of sins, sanctification, or that process of, of being made more righteous, and the renewal of the inner man. So for Roman Catholics, the idea is a transformative one, that righteousness is being made righteous, being made a better person. The Protestant view has been very different insofar as it distinguishes very carefully between justification and what we're going to come to next very briefly, sanctification, the idea of being declared righteous and the idea of being made a more righteous person. And the insight of the reformers of the 16th century was that when Paul talks about justification, he's not saying that God comes and says, I'm going to make you a better person and make you more just, make you more righteous. But that God comes to us in our guilt and says, I am going to count you as righteous. I am going to declare you as righteous, as a legal declaration and actually, that fits the argument of Romans much better because Paul has previously been talking about how we are all guilty before God at the, the bar of God's justice. And we need to be declared righteous before God. And more than that, when we get to chapter 6 of Romans, Paul has to tackle a misunderstanding that arose about his views. Some people misunderstood Paul as saying that because we are put right with God, then we can live whatever way we like. And Paul says, absolutely not. I can, I can we who have died to sin continue any, continue any longer in it? We've been joined to Jesus Christ. It would be inconsistent for us to live on in sin when we experience this new life in Jesus Christ. But if 
what Paul had meant in chapter 3 by justification is that we actually become better people. If that's what he's saying, that, that God makes us better people at, at the start of our Christian lives, then the misunderstanding would never arise in chapter 6 that he has to, to fend off and say, actually, no, you do need to live righteously before God. And so then that suggests that when he's talking in chapter 3, he's not saying that we become more righteous people, that he's talking about something else. And the other reason why I think it's important to see that Paul's idea of justification here as a legal verdict is because Paul's and the Bible's understanding of God's work in the present in this new, this new era of salvation in Christ is that God's future work has begun in the present. Remember last week we were talking about the Holy Spirit and how God had prophesied that in the end times God would come to be with his people through the Holy Spirit and now Paul says we've got the deposit of that, we've got the, the first installment of that. That's pretty much the same with everything that Paul talks about. Paul sees that everything that has happened in Jesus Christ has been the future inserted into the present. The future began already. That same true with justification. In Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about the end time judgment that we're all going to have to face uh, when we stand before God. And God will assess us and declare who is just and who is unjust. But when he gets to chapter 3, Paul's argument is that that verdict of righteousness on the last day doesn't have to wait until the last day, but that God's future verdict can be announced now. The verdict that God will announce at the end can be given to us today. And the wonderful news, the good news, the gospel news is that that verdict isn't given on the basis of some personal achievement of ours whereby we become good enough to get this verdict. But it's a gift, a gift to be received by faith to all who come to Jesus Christ, acknowledging that they are sinners and that they need this gift of righteousness. This is given to them. And it's given to them on the basis that the end time punishment that they should have endured has has already been experienced in the present through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. The death that we deserved, he endured, so that God comes to us now and declares us righteous. And we can refer to this as imputed righteousness. Not that we become righteous, but that we are declared righteous. We're counted righteous. Now, that distinction between being counted righteous and becoming righteous is something which has caused a lot of confusion between Protestants and Catholics because at first glance, it looks like Protestants are saying that God kind of gives you a blank check and he says, you're okay and you can just do whatever you want with your life, you know. You're fixed, you've got this verdict of righteousness and it doesn't matter what you do now. But that would be a misunderstanding because when we talk about what happens to us at salvation... It's not just justification that happens when we come to Jesus Christ. Justification is one aspect of what happens to us when we come to Christ. But when we trust in Christ, we are joined to Jesus Christ. That's what the New Testament means when it says that we're in Christ Jesus. And being joined to him then means that God begins his work of transformation in our lives. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and starts sweeping out the dirt and chaos and sin from our lives and does start to make us into new people does start to renew our inner man, does start to make us more righteous. 
But that has got to be distinguished from the verdict of justification. Because one is the process by which we become more righteous, and the other is this verdict that God gives us now to say, you are righteous before me. And the reason why that's important to stress is because it gives us a sense of security before God to know that simply by trusting in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous before him. We don't need to wait for some improvement in our lives. We don't need to see if we've improved enough. We receive this gift, this declaration of righteousness. And so what we're saying then is this first aspect of salvation, this justification, um, this experience of salvation that we've entered to corresponds to the condemnation that we incurred through our own personal sin and through our identification with Adam as the head of the human race. And so our new identification with Jesus Christ instead doesn't give us condemnation, but gives us justification. doesn't give us death, but gives us this new life that we experience. Now, two other tenses of salvation. Like I said, um, it's not just that God declares us righteous, not just that we have been saved, but we continue to be saved. And God continues his work in us. And don't worry, I, yeah, I reckon I'll probably finish about quarter two. So uh, I'm not going to spend as long on the other two points as I have uh, on this one, on justification. Sanctification, then, is God's process of making us more holy. Um, interestingly, when you look at the New Testament, many times when you see that word to be sanctified or sanctification, it actually doesn't refer to a process. It refers to God's um, status that he's given to us as God's sanctified or holy people. Nevertheless, um, in theological terms, and when we often talk about sanctification, we're talking about the process by which God actually makes us more righteous, makes us more holy. And it overlaps a lot with what I said last week, or the last time I spoke, about this idea of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and transforming us. And the idea of sanctification, then, is the present tense of salvation, so that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And so salvation isn't something that we just experience and we trust in Christ. It's something that is an ongoing experience in our lives. And that then ties in very closely with what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where he writes, Therefore, beloved dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The way Paul talks about salvation here is really very different from the way he talks about it in Romans chapter 3, because in Romans chapter 3, he, he says very much that it's not something that we that we participate in. It's something that God gives to us as a gift. It's not something that we work for. It's something that those who do not work but trust in the God who justifies the ungodly, God gives to them as a gift. Here he's talking about us working out our salvation. This is something different that Paul is talking about here. And he's saying that we've got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And the reason why we do it with fear and trembling is because we realize that God is at work in our lives, transforming us. And when we realize the significance of the God who made us, the God who made the universe at work in our lives, 
to will. So he's shaping our desires and to act. He's shaping our actions in order to accomplish his purposes. That should make us astonished. Shouldn't make us passive and say, I'll just let God work in his life. Because it's God who's working in our lives to shape our desires, to shape our actions. So that we eagerly participate in what God is doing in our lives. Because it is so significant. It makes us want to live out our salvation that we've experienced. And this then corresponds to God's undoing of another aspect of Adam's fall because not only did we incur condemnation through Adam but we incurred this condemnation this original sin that has tainted our lives and through this process of sanctification God is reversing that he's undoing that he's healing us from that and through this work of sanctification he is changing our desires he is changing our actions so that we actually do become more like Christ and less like Adam And so he's undoing the effects of Adam's sin through the salvation that's been provided for us through Jesus Christ. But then there's the other aspect of salvation as well, the final tense of salvation, what we can refer to as glorification. We have been saved in the past. We've been justified. We are being saved in the present sanctification and we are going to be saved in the future. This is glorification. That's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1, verse 5, where he says... Through faith you are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now Peter's point here, really important to pay attention to what he's saying because sometimes Christians wonder, are you going to make it? am I going to make it to the end? You might have come in through the door of salvation, you've been justified, you're on the path of salvation, you're being sanctified, but Are you going to make it to the end, given the the doubts that you experience, given the temptations that you endure, seeing the sin in your life, will you make it to the end? And Peter's point here is that we are being shielded, we're being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that's ready to be be revealed the last time. Note what he's saying. God's power protects us, And it's through faith. That means that God empowers our faith. Our faith which is so weak. Our faith which struggles at times. is isn't just our efforts that we muster up. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. By which God continues to strengthen us. Continues to enable us to hold on to him. Ready to be Uh, ready for this salvation that will be revealed in the last time. More than that, God has to be consistent because if God has given us the verdict in the present of what he's going to announce at the last time, at the last judgment, if he's going to say at the end, you're righteous, and if he's announced that at the present, at justification, then he needs to make sure that what he has announced now matches what happens in the future. And so there's got to be that preservation of us that continues right with us until the very end. So what's going to happen at the end? Well, God's salvation is going to be completed. He's going to finish what he started. This work of reversal, undoing the works of the devil, says the Lord Jesus. This undoing of the ruin of the fall is something which is going to be completed at the end, where not only will... uh, our sinful corruption be taken away, but the the effect of sin in our bodies, in our creation, is going to be taken away. 
And we are going to enter into the experience of resurrection life that Jesus Christ has entered into. And this is what Paul then talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in Romans chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 15 here, very briefly, he says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Paul says that he's talking about a mystery in verse 51, something which hadn't been previously revealed. Previously, it looked like in the Old Testament, everyone would die and then the Messiah would come at the end time and raise all the righteous dead uh, to, to new resurrection life again. But what Paul is saying is that, that Jesus Christ will come and that there will be some of his people alive at that time and they will receive their resurrection bodies at that point. They will not go through the experience of death. But for those who are dead, they will also be joined with those who experience this resurrection life. There will also be a resurrection to condemnation for those who do not know Jesus Christ. But Paul isn't talking about that just here. He's talking about the experience of Christians. How we will enter this experience of resurrection life. And their experience is one of immortality. Death itself being done away with. And he says, at that point, the saying is going to be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That experience of death that began at the, the garden when Adam rebelled against God. God is in this process of undoing it, reversing it all, until that point where he just swallows up every last remnant at the end. And his victory, his triumph will be such that death itself will no longer have any hold over our lives and God's reign will bring us into this experience of complete salvation. And, says the Apostle John, as Jim quoted in prayer, we will see Jesus and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That sight of God, whatever it was for Adam to see God walking in the garden, I don't know. That side of God, though, that he was cut off from is now restored to us in the face of Jesus Christ and we will see God in the face of Jesus Christ. All that we were banished from will be restored and the tragedy of the history of Adam's sin and rebellion will be reversed and undone forever. And that's what salvation is about. Salvation is the story of what God has done to undo our failure, our sin, our rebellion. And God, through his grace, gives it to us as a gift, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. And we experience it now in the present through justification, the verdict of the future given to us in the present so that we know that we're right with God ahead of that last time. It's something that we experience progressively in our lives through sanctification, through, God is trans through God's work of transformation in our lives, uh, a marvelous reality where God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And one day we're going to experience it as a full and consummated reality when death itself will be swallowed up and we will be with our God. And so we wait. We wait ready for the salvation that will be revealed in the last time. And we wait 
knowing that God keeps us by his power ready for that salvation to be revealed on the last time. Let's bow our heads and pray as we close. Almighty God, we thank you for this marvelous work of salvation that you have accomplished. Thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he did on the cross, that one act of righteousness by which he has swept away all of our guilt and brought to dawn in this world this era of new life that we have entered into, 